Stephen Kotler is the guy when it comes to talking about flow state. His new book, The Art of Impossible, is phenomenal. And we dive in and talk about what is this thing called flow state? Why is it so incredibly pleasurable? And how the hell do we get there more often? This was a great podcast with a ton of takeaways. I can't wait to share it with you. This podcast is brought to you by Blue Blocks, Blue Blocking Sunglasses. Go to blueblocks.com slash amp for 15% off. This podcast is also brought to you by Lucy Tobacco-Free Gum. Go to lucy.co slash amp for 20% off. And lastly, Onnit. Onnit.com slash Aubrey for 10% off everything always. In reading The Art of Impossible and having this conversation with Stephen Kotler, it became really apparent to me that perhaps all of these activities, which I love so much, whether it's sports or making love to my wife or anything that takes me out of my mind and I'm fully embodied in the thing, well, many times I think it's that thing that I love to do. But perhaps that thing is just a vehicle to release that massive load of endogenous chemicals that comes in flow state that gives me the pleasurable sensation that makes me feel like I love that thing when really that thing is just the way for me to get my own pharmaceutical cocktail endogenously released by my own brain and hormone systems. So I'm in flow state and I have that absolute release of my mind which is so highly pleasurable and so sought after interesting food for thought and just one of the myriad topics i talk about on this podcast with stephen kotler but before we get started a few words from our sponsors so one of the biohacks that is absolutely not debatable is keeping blue light out of your eyes when it starts to get dark. And the blue light comes from all the artificial light in our homes. Now I write about this in my book and pretty much every individual who writes about sleep writes about this because the problem is that the blue light then actually triggers those daylight sensors in our circadian rhythm, which actually suppresses the production of melatonin, which is the hormone that helps us fall asleep. So eliminating or at least restricting the blue lights that you're letting wash over your eyes at night is going to have a huge impact so that's where blue blocks comes in now most of these blue light blocking glasses they look i don't know like not that sexy like not that sweet blue blocks really took it to the best place possible and made these glasses look really good feel really good high quality and just as effective as anything you will find anywhere else so i highly recommend this product it's phenomenal go to blue blocks dot com slash amp that's b-l-u-b-l-o-x dot com slash amp or use the discount code amp for 15 percent off at checkout once again blueblocks.com forward slash amp for 15 percent off our next sponsor is lucy and lucy is one of the best delivery mechanisms for nicotine it's a nicotine gum that's not like nicorette or something like that it tastes great and it delivers nicotine with the purpose being to utilize this as a nootropic, as a way to actually enhance brain function. And if you read my book, Own the Day, I talk about all of the different ways that nicotine is a beneficial nootropic. Now, of course, cigarettes are awful for you. It's a terrible way to get nicotine. It does so much damage to the body. But this gum is a different delivery mechanism, and I think you'll find it incredibly valuable and accretive if this is something that you're called to. So the flavors are wintergreen, cinnamon, and pomegranate. 
They have four milligrams of nicotine. There's also a new cherry ice flavor. So 20% off any order at lucy.co with the promo code AMP. That's L-U-C-Y dot C-O with the promo code AMP and you'll get 20% off. And of course, with any nicotine product, there comes a warning. This product contains nicotine derived from tobacco. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. So if you're going to dance with any plant, any chemical, or any substance at all, make sure you're driving the ship and the plant, chemical, or substance isn't driving you. It's a new year, and this year is all you, and Onnit is here to help support you in every way possible. You've heard me talk about the Onnit 6 programs, which are phenomenal, but sometimes you just want a quicker workout. You just want to get in, get out in 30 minutes, and make sure that you're moving in the right way, that you're challenging yourself in the right way. So we have a solution. It's called On It In 30. So 10 workouts for under 10 bucks, and they're all incredible workouts. These are some of the most popular classes we offer at On It Gym, the 30-minute express class. People go in on their lunch breaks. People go in, and you get a full workout with a warm-up, with a cool-down, with everything that you need to support your body, make sure you stay healthy, strong, and happy, as Wim Hof would like to say. So check it out. On It In 30 is now available. There's routines for kettlebells, body weight, and mobility at 30 minutes or less. It's streamed online, on demand, so you can train anywhere, anytime, and it's training for your whole body and for every experience level. Go to onit.com slash Aubrey or check out onit.com slash onit dash in dash 30 to go right there. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Stephen Kotler. Stephen Kotler, my man, it's good to see you again, brother. Good to see you. Especially on the eve of reading your amazing book. And how I want to start this podcast is actually starting by reading a bit from the end of your book, because I think this really sets the tone. You write, what impossible challenges would you tackle if you knew you could be 500% more productive, if you could be 600% more creative, if you could cut learning times in half? That's exactly what the tools and the techniques in this book can provide, which means that's exactly what's available to you, to each and every one of us. What you choose to do with this information, well, that's entirely up to you. So go fucking get them. I added fucking, but go fucking get them, Tiger. And hell yeah, man. I mean, that's, that's it. Like that's, uh, I think that's what we're all pursuing in a certain way. And, uh, and your book does a great job of kind of, making this from something that's abstract to something that's concrete and that's one of the things i love about it thank you so much i guess the book everybody's wanted me to write for like 10 to 15 years um people wanted me to write it right after my first book about flow west at jesus and i and i remember it like so clearly when the publishers came to me and i was like i don't the science is not here it took 20 years for the science to sort of catch up to the idea of this yeah and you know as you say it's science is always on a continuum and I think, you know, that's one of the challenges that we see even now is people think of science as something that's fixed and finite and dead. Well, it's never, it never is. It's always evolving. Our understanding is always growing. And that discourse of information, exploration, discovery is absolutely necessary to keep it alive. It's like the respiration of science. Yeah, I always, I like to say that science is usually directionally accurate and sometimes factually accurate and, <laughs> and right. And when it, but when it's factually accurate, it's not that the facts themselves are wrong. It's that 
they exist at a particular scale, right? A certain level of information. For example, neuroscience, where I where I where I study and I work, um, the upper edge of neuroscience right now is kind of the population level of neurons and communications between population those are neurons, and people are starting to work on that. And cognitive neuroscience is starting to take those network dynamics and apply it to behavior. But that's sort of the edge of where we are right now. So everything we're true up to there. Everything beyond that is a giant mystery. Right. I mean, at a certain point, I mean, the concept of quantum physics, the quantum of quantum computing. I mean, these were abstractions, you know, kind of mysterious and and not that well understood, but they're becoming more and more practical. I mean, we're going to have a quantum computer at some point that's well, going to change ones and zeros forever. Well, I mean, go to Rigetti.com right now. It's uh, Rigetti.com is one of the people working on a quantum computer and you can download Forest, which they're AP, open API. It's a quantum interface for anybody. And you can run programs. I think it's a 32 qubit computer right now, maybe more, but they're like a, a million and a half programs been run. So like, and that that's not full strength. I know what you're talking about, mm-hmm. but that's still like a interface to the quantum world that's available to everyone right now, which is kind of amazing. Um, but I also, um, all, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that I'm writing about in this book is, you know, sort of evolving exactly along, you know, those kind of trajectories, which is why, you know, it's so much, and it's a lot, so much has been done the past five to 10 years. So finally we're like, oh, wow, there's a complete map that all of human performance is designed to work together. Look at that, right? And this is right at the, but that's again, like systems level stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it seems like that, <clears throat> I mean, I'm sure there's certain metaphysical possibilities of what the human organism might become capable of as we were able to adapt. As you said, from you know one of those extreme sports analogies, what was impossible in the morning suddenly becomes possible in the afternoon. And then it's like, oh shit, Like there's a whole new world that's available. But a lot of what you're talking about is the accessible level that we have now and have always had, which is this flow state. And it's one of the things you're most known for. So Let's just start there and start to okay. give people, even if people don't have, I think we all have some rough idea, but you go really deep into the nature of flow state. And that's what's accounting for what I teased everybody with these 500% improvements in productivity and mental capability, increases in strength and awareness, all the physical adaptations that come from it, creativity adaptations. All of that's available by just getting ourselves in this right framework that also has a lot of biological markers that are easily you know measured if you have the right equipment so um thank you it's, it's a great place to start flow is the tech it's defined scientifically as an optimal state of performance where we feel our best and we perform our best more specifically it refers to any of those moments of, of kind of rapt attention and total absorption you get so focused on what you're doing so lost in the task at hand everything else just seems to disappear action and awareness will start to merge your sense of self will get really quiet, maybe disappear completely. Time dilates, which is a fancy way of saying it passes strangely. So sometimes it'll slow down. You get a freeze frame effect. Man, enemy has been in a car crash. More frequently, it'll speed up. And five hours will go by in like five minutes. And throughout all aspects of performance, both mental and physical, go through the roof. Those were the, the numbers you were alluding to in the beginning are some of what has been measured in flow on various aspects of performance. Um, and what the state does to performance. So it's a huge 
kind of step function where the change in a lot of different stuff. And we've all had this experience um, of flow. It's universal. It shows up in everyone. And we can all get way more of it is, is sort of one of the points of the book. And not, I think sometimes we can, we conflate the activity itself and the pleasure of an activity with the flow state, which is actually driving a lot of the pleasure. You know, for example, one of the things that's been actually triggering flow state for me is I picked up a new sport and the sport's called pickleball. And it's like a combination of tennis and ping pong, you know, so it's like tennis on a small court with a, with a racket that's somewhere between a ping pong paddle and a stringed racket. Right. And I have some buddies that i'm real competitive with and we go out there and you know time evaporates and it's not only that the time evaporates but we're just so engaged in it we're play we're playing we're having fun we're innovating we're thinking about the creativity of our shots completely immersed in that activity and so part of me is like man i just love pickleball but really yeah i'm sure i like pickleball i'm sure i like hitting the ball over the net and you know scrambling for other things but what probably i really love is it's actually allowing me to access flow state you know in that point so so really what a lot of the pleasure is is not hitting backhands and forehands it's that that activity is driving me into this optimal neurochemical cocktail that is as you say in the book, one of the absolute most pleasurable things the human organism can experience. It's like being on six drugs at once. That is absolutely correct. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, I mean, you're, you're totally right. Um, it's an interesting question. So let, uh, I think I covered this in Art of the Impossible, but I'm not sure if I did. Uh, positive psychologists now talk about sort of three levels of happiness that are available to all humans on earth. And level one is just hedonic pleasure, right? How are you right here, right now in this moment? And it turns out there's not a whole lot you can do. Like Dan Harris was sort of right. You can be 10% happier. And a lot of that, we have emotional set points that are sort of set up by early childhood, by genetics and early childhood experience that sort of determine the bandwidth of our life. And we like feel everything between the low and the high point, but they don't really extend out. There are a little few ways to stretch them, but it's not super flexible. The next level up is what is termed either engagement or enjoyment. And it's literally a life, a high flow lifestyle. And it could be literally that you could be, doesn't matter what your job is, you could have an amateur pickleball life going on, yeah. right? And that counts. So like I live in South Lake Tahoe and there are tons of people who live all around me who work construction jobs over the summer, which are kind of flowy jobs because you're working with your hands and it's engaging. Um, but they, so they can ski all winter, mm. right? So that's, or hunt all winter or both, right? That's really common. That's the best, the second best. And the highest is when you take the thing that produces the most flow for you and can couple it to purpose. Mm. So something outside yourself that's greater than yourself that produces a tremendous amount of flow, which is sort of why the book starts there and talks about going in that direction. Um, but that's the best we get to feel on the planet. You're asking, you sort of poked at a much more complicated question, which is like, how much do we enjoy shit without the flow? Right? Like, right. is it, and you know, it's interesting because um, it's known. So in athletics, for example, flow is often what happens when we automatize, we learn a bunch of skills well enough that we can do them almost automatically and they start to come together. As you said, with pickleball, you're innovating, you're creating new shots, and right? That's that flow you've already got, you've laid down the stage. But uh, the point being 
it's a little peculiar. Like we don't, you know, flow is defined by six core psychological characteristics, one of which is autotelic experience. It, it's exactly what we're talking about in the end in itself. It means once an experience starts producing flow, we'll go extraordinarily far out of our way to get more of it. So where is like the, what is flow and what is the activities an open question, but it is possible uh, to do, you can win, for example, gold medals and world championships without flow. It doesn't happen very often. Flow is, and flow is always a portion of the learning process itself. But in the actual competition, there you can do it, and you can talk to people who have done those had those kinds of experiences, and everybody says the same thing. It's possible once, but you'll never want to repeat it. Right, it's right. Just, right. You can produce that much energy, and you can work that hard. But without flow, sort of amping up strength, deadening pain, doing all that stuff on the physical side, it's really unpleasant to perform at that level. That's a, yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting point as well. And, and I think for me, what makes it really clear is, so I can go out and play pickleball with a beginner. And whatever the criteria is to create the flow when I'm playing pickleball competitively with people where we're like, at the at the edge at our performance edge where where we're really challenged but, by the way i want i'm very proud of you because you keep talking about pickleball with a straight face as if this was a thing right <laughs> yeah pickle, it's a we, thing we're pickleball it's really yeah. good like you're holding it together every time you say it i'm like he's gonna lose it this time he's gonna he's <laughs> like pickleball yep so well if i'm out there and i'm out there just playing with somebody who's a beginner i don't get anywhere near it and it, it's not even that pleasurable. You know, if someone who I know isn't that good is like, hey, you want to go out and play pickleball? I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll do that like I would scratch your back. Like, I'll do that, you know, for you in a, in a way. Like, yeah, well, sure, we'll go out or it'll be a nice experience for you. But it doesn't drive that same kind of enjoyment sure. that I have. And also, one of the characteristics of this is after a highly competitive game, I'm like lit up. I'm, my brain is fired up. Sometimes I even have trouble falling asleep. It's like it alters my biology and neurochemistry to a point that's lasting, which I think is another interesting thing as well, where that doesn't happen when I'm just out there playing. So it, it really makes me aware that it's not only the activity, but it's the conditions within that activity. Well, those are, I mean, you're pointing at, we can talk, flow states have triggers, right? One of the reasons mm -hmm. we know we can get more of it is there are preconditions that lead to more flow. There are 22 of them that are 12 that are individual, 10 that are group flow. So you can get into a shared collective version of flow state. You and I can get into a flow state talking. That's known as interpersonal flow. In fact, the most common flow state in the world, though most people don't recognize it, is actually, well, pre-COVID, it was middle managers in a work environment having conversations. Um, that was the most common, like getting lost in that, you know, people talking about a work problem and a couple hours go by and they don't even notice most common flow state uh, people have found or one of them. But um, these preconditions uh, or the interpersonal flow is just one-on-one -on -one, then goes next level up is group flow. This is a fourth quarter comeback in football right? the whole team mm. comes together or a great, if you've ever seen improv theater or seen a live band where the music, the band comes together, music just soars. That's group flow in action. Been part of a great brainstorming session where the ideas are flying around the room. That's group flow. And then you can get it at huge scale, right? Which a political rally or a rock concert that's communitas. It's group flow at Stales when there's a hundred thousand people and you've merged with the crowd and the band and the music and right. 
So it, it goes up and down in terms of the scale of the impact when you're playing pickleball with really good competitive friends. That's group flow. And you sort of were poking at several of group flow's triggers like familiarity. It's really an level, equal level of skills, right? And you need equal level of skills for this obvious reason that if you take an absolute beginner to the court, they're having fun and they're challenged, but your attention isn't there. You're, it's not challenging enough for you, mm. et cetera, et cetera. And so like every, but six different things you just talked about are foundational group flow triggers. Um, and now we're starting to understand the neurobiology underneath them. And by the way, when I say there are 12 individual and 10 group, this is all we found so far. There's probably way more, but that's what we know so far. And there's very distinct kind of neurobiology underneath the triggers. We know what they're doing in the brain that's driving us into flow. Yeah. And it's it's the same with um, with conversations as well. And, and in these conversations, because you mentioned that about middle managers, if I'm having a conversation with someone who's really intellectually stimulating and the ideas are novel i mean that conversation i'll have rapt attention but if i'm talking to somebody where i'm explaining something that's just wrote for me or you know it's the discourse isn't that engaging my mind will be running a background operating system it's like part of my cpu is just kind of figuring something else out on the side because this isn't challenging me to bring me forward same with a a book i have to read that isn't really challenging or expanding my awareness i'll just kind of go through it blah 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 thinking about something oh fuck i didn't even read these last pages because i'm not into it but a book that's like challenging or a conversation that's stimulating you know that will drive me into that flow state and that's where you know the magic is that's where mm-hmm. i don't even know how long i was doing it i'm just there and and that's one of the things that i love about podcasts is podcasts the stakes are high there's a lot of people listening i'm talking to really you know incredibly stimulating people and so i'm fucking there you know so i i mean i love i love the art of podcasting and this is kind of where it blends into instead of pickleball which is kind of just a tangential activity which gives me a nice hit of flow but has completely unrelated to my purpose podcasting is has become co-opted as a part of my purpose so it's in in some ways like the highest form and at least the most productive form of the most productive form it's it's worth a couple things that are worth pointing out so uh flow has we talked about a, a fairly big impact on creativity. And this is all aspects of creativity, problem identification, problem solving, pattern matching, all the all the subsets that go into creativity um, are sort of surrounded by, by flow. Uh, and you'll see, uh, depending on whose numbers you're going by, a 400 to 700% boost in creativity. It's a huge upswelling. But uh, Teresa Amable at Harvard figured out that that heightened creativity, you sort of got at that a little bit earlier, it can outlast by flow state by a day sometimes too. So flow itself, 90-minute experience. There's no fixed time limit. And there's an altruism-triggered flow state known as helper's high. It was discovered by Alan Lukes, who founded Big Brother's Big Sister. And it supposedly lasts a couple of days. So, And that may have to do with more oxytocin and some of those social chemicals that you'll get from that kind of experience. Besides the point, average flow state is about 90 minutes, right? But you know, the mm. creativity is a couple of days, um, which is really amazing. And the other thing that is worth noting, flow is essentially kind of focus. It's a specific kind of focusing skill. Certain things are happening in the brain, but it's like training the brain to do anything. So the more flow you have, generally, the more flow you have. In other words, I would guess, you tell me if I'm right or wrong, that since you've been getting way more flow on the pickleball court, I'll bet you're finding flow in the podcast is easier to drop into and a little deeper. 
I would guess. Yeah, and that's and that's where flow has a universality to it. And I think this is a this is a, a cool thing to explore is that perhaps you haven't come up with your massively transformative purpose, which is one of the, you know, the things that you talk about or you don't have your high hard goals. And I want to go into all of those because I think that's a really important thing to follow through on these things that relate to your purpose or your you know acts of service you're not doing those but even the simple act of finding flow anywhere is going to help you you know so even if it is pickleball yeah no i I mean by the way during covid because flow the humans let's back up a couple big ideas that are worth getting out up front which is when we talk about peak performance what the research really clearly shows is it means it's nothing more than getting your biology to work for you rather than against you. And not a new idea, right? William James, 100 years ago in the first psychology textbook ever, says the great thing then in all education is to make our nervous system our ally instead of our enemy. So, right, like not a new idea. The only thing that's new is now we understand that there's a specific set of tools and there's an order to the process and it's designed to work in sequence and um that is accessible to everybody else but that's all besides the point flow itself was adapted for us to deal with crisis situations lots of oh shit something's going down we need to perform at our best let's let, let's take care of it that's where it sort of came from originally um, from an evolutionary perspective we can go more into that but that's just a quick idea the point being COVID, when COVID started, um, this is people in crisis. It turns out, you know, a lot of the stuff that we work on was really perfect for it. And one of the very first things we were telling people to do during COVID is make sure to double down on what was known as your primary flow activity, which is literally whatever that thing was that you did as a kid that dropped you right into flow. Maybe it was play with, read comic books or learn dance hip hop or martial arts or surf or skateboard, or play tennis, or draw, or paint, or spelling bee, I mean, take your drum major, take your pick, whatever it was. And as a rule, and you know this, as we become adults, as we become responsible, what's the first thing that goes right out the window is that thing that gave us so much flow. And literally, especially during crisis situations, the first thing you want to do to react to a crisis is reboot your primary flow activity. Because especially during a crisis, it's going to be really hard to get out of your head. And the best way to do it is to find something that you absolutely love to do. Um, So that's one of the first things we were training people to do at the beginning of COVID was, okay, stay socially distanced, stay away from other people, but figure out whatever that thing was and find a version of it that you can keep doing now. Yeah. Is it... As you talk about this, and, and you have a you have a great a great quote about flow, which is like basically how this gets done from a biological perspective. I think you, what you say is um, that oxygen is to breathing what flow is to you know these forms of innovation when pressed with a, with a great challenge. And is that why potentially when it's aligned with your purpose, because when you have a strong purpose, a a purpose that you're passionate about, a purpose that you know is meaningful, not only to you, but meaningful to the greater, you know, self or the greater whole, then it almost is putting this, this, it's raising the stakes in general. So if you have a really strong purpose, it seems like you're almost mimicking some of the environment that a crisis would provide, except not on an acute level, but at an extended kind of long-term level. Let me give you a little bit of a big picture thing. First of all, the, and 
place you've got to sort of start with this question is uh, what does flow actually amplify? And it amplifies a huge suite of stuff, productivity, motivation, creativity, and innovation. It accelerates learning. It amplifies empathy, ecological awareness, our ability to perceive the natural world. Uh, it increases strength, stamina, fast twitch muscle response, and deadens pain. And if you know anything about science, when somebody presents you a laundry list of, hey, and by the way, these are like productivity, McKinsey, that you said you, one of the numbers you threw out uh, was a, a 500% boost in productivity. That's at the end of the book. That comes from a 10-year study conducted by the McKinsey Consultancy, where they went around the world asking top executives how much more productive are they in flow. Now, it's a self-reported thing. So grain of salt there, if you will. But they asked a lot of people over a decade. On average, it was 500% more productive in flow. That's it. You, that's like you go to work on Monday, spend Monday to flow state, you take Tuesday through Friday off, you're getting as much done, right, as everybody else uh, in that one day a week of flow. Mm -hmm. Two days a week, you're a thousand percent more productive than the competition. So like to put it in context, um, it's, a, it's a big boost. But, you know, if you've got a, any kind of science brain, you can be like, well, why would one thing, one state of consciousness amplify all this stuff? Like what the hell is going on? And it's a really good question. The answer is that flow is how humans have been shaped by evolution to perform at their best. You've got to ask yourself, well, what shapes evolution? And it's scarcity of resources. And when resources are scarce, you have two options. You can fight over dwindling resources, or you can flee to avoid becoming somebody else's resources, or you can get innovative, get creative, get cooperative and make new resources. Those are the options. So everything that flow amplifies is everything we need to either fight or freeze or flee or get creative, get cooperative, band together, make new resources, right? Explore, go explore, find more resources, that sort of thing. That's the whole toolkit. And purpose, in a sense, is getting more resources for not just you, but also your whole tribe. And the mm -hmm. way that's sort of the way it, it, right, we're built. So once, and this is, this is sort of known. So the way to cultivate purpose and the way it works in the book. Okay. Now we said that, let me back up and introduce a second idea and then we'll get to purpose. The first thing to know is that flow triggers we talked about all the flow trigger is, is flow happens when the law of retention is right in the right here, right now, in the present moments. That's what all the triggers do. They drive focus, they drive attention into the present moment. And they do it one of three ways. They push neurochemicals, dopamine or norepinephrine to our system. They do a lot of different things. They're pleasure chemicals. Dopamine is the same substance produced by cocaine. So the, when you somebody snorts cocaine, the most addictive substance on earth, all that happens is the brain releases dopamine. Norepinephrine, internal version of speed, right? Ritalin, meth, same, right? Same cocktail. These are incredible, energizing, exciting, focusing chemicals. And or the where would the flow triggers lower cognitive load, which basically is the shit you're trying to think about at any one time. If I lower cognitive load, I free up extra energy for attention. You can pay more attention to the present. So that's how the flow triggers work. So that was a side note. Now back to purpose. What the what uh, Art of Impossible really is about is an entire system, and that system always starts with motivation. And when you want to play with motivation, obviously the first place you've got to start is external motivation. You need food. You need you're going to need basic survival level resources. This is what Maslow figured out with the bottom of the pyramid. 
you got to sort of, even though it's not actually a pyramid, if you talk to Scott Barry Kaufman, who just wrote Transcendence, he'll tell you that Maslow's pyramid was more of a metaphor than an actual thing, but he was right about safety and security. And what the research shows is we need to be able to take care of basic safety and security needs with a little bit of cash left over really to get into the peak performance game. You can do it from less than that, but it's hard to do because the anxiety produced by sort of living right at the edge of your means. You can do it, but but once basic needs are met, you've done with your external motivators, money, sex, uh, fame, those kinds of things. Those are still powerful drivers, but they're not primary anymore. And what the biology says is once you're at that point, intrinsic motivators take over. And there are five major big ones, curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, and mastery. And they're actually designed to work in a sequence and be built in a sequence. So curiosity is where all of it starts. And the thing you got to also know here that the last bit that I have to tell you before this gets filled in is that what's the big deal about an intrinsic motivator? The answer is when it comes to peak performance, we don't have a hell of a lot to work with. We have our focus and attention. We have our actions. And if we can put our focus and attention on the same thing over and over and repeat our actions, we get habits, which is actions automatized and sort of effortless and automatically. But that's about all we have to work with. And the action, like when, I'm, when you're learning a thing, you still have to do the thing. It's still going to require the energy it takes. So there's not a whole lot you can do with that. Where the big lever is is focus. And the reason internal motivators matter so much, curiosity, passion, purpose, all this shit, you get focus for free. Think about how hard it is to pay attention to something you're not into versus how easy it is to pay attention to something you're into. You told me already, when you're paying attention to something you're not into, part of your brain's solving a different problem. When you're on a podcast with somebody who's interesting, you're paying attention to them. It happens automatically, right? Passion is the next step. All passion is, is the intersection of multiple curiosities. Why? A little bit of curiosity is some focus, but it's not enough over time to really sustain you. But if you can find a way to find, figure out where your curiosities intersect, that's passion. Once you have passion, you can then attach it to a cause greater than yourself. That's how you find purpose. And I can, if we can send your listeners to passion recipe, dot com www.passionrecipe.com it's the very opening of the book it's how to turn curiosity into passion into purpose so many people felt that was so kind of important when they read and they're like oh my god this is so useful and we've used it for so many uh tens of thousands of people at this point we're just giving it away so it's out there for everybody if you want to know how to do this but and yeah once you have purpose once oh i know what my purpose is in the world what do you need next you need the autonomy, freedom to pursue your purpose. And once you have autonomy or the freedom to pursue your purpose, you need mastery, the skills to pursue that purpose well. And that's the stack of your big five intrinsic motivators. And each is designed to flow into the next. And you asked, what do you get? So this is going to loop everything back. Curiosity is a little bit of a flow trigger. It's not a huge one, but it's a little bit of one. And when you're curious, you get a little bit of norepinephrine and a little bit of dopamine. When you can, when you can put a couple of, a bunch of curiosities together, you're getting a lot of norepinephrine and a lot of dopamine. This is passion. Think about how much when you met, first met your wife, 
you couldn't, like when you're falling in love, romantic love, right? That's passion. That's a lot of norepinephrine doping. The problem then is like, I can't not pay attention to you. It's like, how do I get you out the fuck out of my mind, right? Like, I can't stop thinking about you. Um, you're everywhere. So that's what happens when you add in purpose. You get all that norepinephrine and dopamine, and then you start getting pro-social chemicals to other people. You're no longer just providing resources for yourself passion but now it's for your family your tribe your society purpose and now you get all the pro-social neurochemicals added in oxytocin endorphins and anandamide these are all bigger feel-good chemicals that's why purpose works so well as a motivator and so forth into autonomy and mastery you're basically turning up the feel-good neurochemical juice each step along the way so even though purpose seems very high-minded and altruistic um First of all, from a peak performance standpoint, it's totally selfish because you get more out of yourself, right? And then from a and feel it's more good, pleasurable. Well, know? that's what I mean. From a feel-good hedonic internal, yeah. like if you're actually measuring pleasure chemicals, right? If you weren't terming it altruist, but you were just measuring pleasure chemicals, no, purpose is more fun. It's a better high. Yeah. It's interesting because I've experienced a phenomenon that's happened and it's really come online particularly since meeting and marrying my wife. And so I'll explain. I think part of the, you know, as you said, there's extrinsic and intrinsic motivation. And I had like a, a dual engine jet that was motivating me. I had my extrinsic motivations and my intrinsic motivations. I've always known I had something important to contribute to the world, ideas, thoughts, the ways that I could use language and communicate and the ways that I could lead all of these different things were a part of my motivation from the beginning. But there was also a healthy grip of extrinsic motivation that was largely wrapped up in mate attraction. And even in my previous relationship, it was a polyamorous relationship. So mate attraction was, you know, finding the next paramour or even finding, you know, finding something else, particularly, you know, another romantic partner was a big part of my extrinsic motivation because I started to knock down during that period. I created on it. I wrote a best-selling book. I start, you know, I was doing a lot of the things <clears throat> that were extrinsically motivating. I had the, I had the wealth, I had the, you know, the influence, I had all of the different things that were driving me earlier. So what was really left was, ah, mate attraction. You know, that's another thing. The more I put out there in the world, the more likely I am to attract a high quality mate. And so I had that. Well, then I get married to Vailana and all of a sudden mate attraction. That's like, I just put a big old check in that box. And it was like the last bastion of true extrinsic motivation was crossed off the list. And now I'm looking out and I'm like, oh, wow, all I have left is intrinsic motivation. Really? I mean, of course, that's an, that's a, you know, hyperbole to a certain degree. Of course, there's always going to be some small extrinsic motivation that remains driven by the ego and driven by certain things. But I've gone from a two engine jet for the most part to pretty much a one engine jet. And I've found myself at certain points lacking in that motivation. And I've realized like I've got to go back and really double down on my purpose to drive enough fuel into my intrinsic motivation. Hold up, hold up. You're right, <laughs> sort of. But, but so, uh, so the way the book, and, you, and you're, the way the book is structured, right? You want to start, it starts with motivation. And motivation, there's the intrinsic stuff, and then there's the intrinsic stack. Then you've got your three tiers of goal setting. You're massively transforming your purpose, high, hard goals, and clear goals. We'll come back to that in a second. Mm -hmm. um, 
then you go into grit. And one of the big grit skills is the grit to confront your fear. And this is, there's this order to the sequence, but once you get that far along, which is sort of where you are, that's when you fear becomes your best friend. That's when you fear becomes another motivator that you actually tap into when you're that right. And I always say this, every, everybody I know has ever kind of tackled impossible challenges, right? Who the book is really for uh, people who are going after really high, hard goals in a sense. Um, all, they all have, they're all running away from something. First of all, just as fast as they're running towards something. Right. Um, and that's cause that double engine, as you pointed out is really useful. And so something's usually chasing people who get really far a little bit and they they kind of let it and, um, they like running towards something. But I think at a certain level, you have to start like these days for me, I will, you know, when I write a book, I've written art impossible. I think is my 12th book. 13th book, um, somewhere in there. Um, and there's two more that are sitting in drawers that the world will never see. So it's like 15 <laughs> or 60 or something like that. Right. Um, I've done it a lot, but I, for the past four or five books, often I'll say, okay, what is the scariest kind of book? Like what, what haven't I mm. written? What's really hard? And sure. There's a, I, there's an idea I want to communicate in the book. That's the ch it, communication challenge. And there's this style challenge, but I'll, for example, Bold was a book I wrote with Peter Diamandis. And it's a business book. It's a straight-up business book. And I have never seen a bit. First of all, I'm so not a business guy and so not a business <laughs> writer, right? Um, that, like, you know, even in of itself, the, like, the fact that an old punk rocker like me gets to write a business book like that is pretty funny. But um, on top of that, uh, most business books suck, right? They're just yeah. terrible. They're really badly written. And so Bold, the challenge was can I write a business book that doesn't suck? And that was a terrifying thought, right? Like even, and this was, I was doing this way back when I wrote West to Jesus, which was so early on, but it was, a, it was, it was probably the first major book anybody had written about the neurobiology of so-called mystical experience, right? What's going on in the brain when we're having so-called peak experiences. And the time this was so cutting edge and I was using surfing as a metaphor. And I remember thinking at the time, I was like, well, so I've got surfing and mysticism and neuroscience. And if this goes wrong, I'm going to be like the poor man's Richard Bach. It'll be like <laughs> Jonathan Livingston Siegel for surfers kind of thing. And I was like, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to come back from that one. But that level of fear is really good because it keeps you focused. And I think that's also like, yes, I agree with you about go back, reboot your purpose, all that other stuff. But it's also like, you know, Maybe bigger, slightly bigger challenges. Yeah, that a bigger, a bigger, scarier goal, and yeah. I think that's a, I think that's a, a part of it because at a certain point you've fulfilled at least a good part, and that's why when your purpose is a little bit abstract, as I said, I was describing my purpose to you, and it was highly abstract. Oh, I'm here to share ideas to bring, you know, bring a convergence of my own, you know, psychedelic inspired spirituality with philosophy and entrepreneurship and this idea that you can achieve balance by reaching for the extreme. There's these specific things, but it's just, it, they're all very kind of general. And I actually made that even more specific, even when I was talking there, but I've, I've kind of achieved a good quotient of that. And so, and it's been, it's been great. That was incredibly scary and seemingly impossible, you know, at least lowercase impossible hard for me to do at a certain point. Cause you know, I didn't have anything. I didn't have a platform. I didn't have a podcast. I'd never written a book. I didn't never started a company. And then all of a sudden I started knocking these and things And you'd off. never done a psychedelic, which <laughs> yeah, was what yeah. was really brave of you. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. And so, 
But now I think part of this purpose reboot for me is to really invest in a in a new high hard goal that's fucking terrifying, something that's scary. Well, so and that, that so let's clarify a couple things. Um, just because the terminology is a little um confusing. There are three levels of goal setting that it appears that humans need. There, there are other ways to divide it up, but three is the minimum. You're, it sounds like you're per, you need a mission level. What we, Peter and I dubbed a massively transformative purpose or a mission level goal for your life, right? And that's what you were talking about. That's a mission level goal for your life. And I think those things don't change, right? Mine, I have three things that I, that I you know, I sort of came to do. They haven't changed. They still, they're still what I steer by and filter by. But your high heart goals is the next level down. Mm. And these are, let's say your mission is to write books that change the world. Your high heart goals yep. is I want to get a degree in creative writing. I want to study journalism for five years so I can learn how to do that. I want to write a book on cooking. I want to write a book on jujitsu. I want to write, a, you know, blow, take your pick. Um, those are your high heart goals. They're usually depending on who you are, one to five year projects tends to be. And I think it's good to set, everybody's got different time horizons and different times in your life you can see kind of farther out, right? The, the sort of hungrier you've been, the shorter your time horizons tend to be as a general rule. Um, but you know, I, I like to set, I set three-year goals. I thought for my own life, I found even my companies after three years, so much has changed in the world that I can't, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not useful for me to try to predict beyond that. So like I'll set high hard goals that and then you need your clear goals. What's yeah. the shit you're going to do today to advance towards your high hard goals. And, um, what really needs to start when we talk about setting harder goals, you're talking about upping the level on your high hard goals. You don't really the challenge level of today always, you always want to be stretching right to the edge of your skill set, right? Pushing, you want to stretch, but not snap. And that's, you know, that's the pickleball example. The most important flow trigger, the challenge skills ratio. Flow shows up. You pay the most attention to the task at hand when the challenge of the task slightly exceeds our skill set. You want to stretch, but not snap, right? And that where that sweet spot is, the so-called flow channel, it's different. If you're shyer, if you're meeker, it's a little harder because you're going to, it's always at right outside your comfort zone. But for folks like yourself, Aubrey, the problem often with what you go after today is you'll take on challenges that are like a hundred percent greater than your skills at 200 for just for the thrill of it at this point. Right. And you still have to chunk it down yeah. th so that what you're dealing with today is just outside your skills. Otherwise you're producing too much anxiety and you're going to end up blocking peak performance. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a, uh... Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think differentiating, you know, between those kind of mission level things, which are, which are always there and, and can be a little bit abstract and then reducing them to something that a little more definite, a little more concrete with your high, hard goals. And then reducing that even more to your daily to-do list, what you're going to do this week, what you're going to do this month, you know, how you're going to go. And, about by, yeah, and, by, and by the way, I also, let's talk about a couple things about the, the day. The, I mean, clear goals for the two lists is, process goals right you know not outcome goals your daily to-do list can't say today i will win the nobel peace prize like it doesn't <laughs> right it's got to be today i'm going to write 500 words in my new book or write that something that you're like okay i can do this and whether those words suck or they're great doesn't matter 
the point is it goes on the list and you do it that way, right? Um, so it's really that that it's worth knowing that those are sort of process goals where your high heart goals, those could be more outcome goals in that I want to write a book. I would never set a higher goal that is, I want to write a book that is a new, I want to write this book and demand that it does this in the world. I might say one of my higher goals is to write a number one New York Times bestseller, but I would never put tag it to a specific book. Right. Um, Cause I then, then I, cause I can't, I, I want all my goals to be within sort of, I want them to be crazy stretches, but I want them to be within my power and what a book does in the world there's certainly marketing and PR and there's all that stuff that you can do, but ultimately the book is going to do its own thing in the world. And that's sort you know what I mean? Peter, and I just launched futures faster than you think last year we were in Fox news going on Fox morning show and God, there's news out of China about this new strange disease. That was what they were updating people about right before we hit came on air. And I looked at Peter and I was like, I think we might have a problem, Peter. (laughs) I I think this virus thing might be around for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that's really important because we're not responsible for how the external world responds to what we're doing. So there was, there was an interesting study that you put in because this is a, this is a really important topic. Interestingly, you know, there was a study that you put in about lumberjacks and lumberjacks were given, basically they were told, look, just go out, do your best, cut as many well, trees yeah, down okay, as so you can. Okay, so hold on. Let me back. Let me tell people there's one, there's one thing that, so this is Gary Latham and John Locke. They're the fathers of goal setting theory. And they're mm-hmm. coming on the scene in the 1950s. And up to that point, there was this overwhelming idea in business that sounds so strange now when you say it out loud, but it's worth, it's just funny that happy workers are productive workers, so don't give anybody a quota because it's just going to make them unhappy. Don't tell the lumberjack, go out and fell 100 trees this week. They'll just tell them to go out and work hard. And that was, right, that's what matters. And Locke and Latham come along and they're like, I don't, I don't know. Like, I think the machinery works a little bit differently than, than you think it does. And um, we were just then starting to sort of understand it. So they, they literally start giving two groups of lumberjacks. One group gets quotas and the other don't. And the quota people are coming back and they're producing two, three, four, like they were beating the quotas and the other lumberjacks weren't even coming close. And what they ended up finding, they read it with lumberjacks. Then they went into every, they were like, okay, maybe it's just lumberjacks. So they (laughs) firemen and then business, everybody they could possibly find setting a high hard goal um around uh something is enough to produce an 11 to 25 percent boost in motivation that's freaking crazy Mm. that's if an eight hour day is your baseline right that's like getting two free hours of work at the high end simply for context for having the right goal around the thing you were going to do right you're going to probably do whatever it is that you're working on you're probably going to sooner or later have to do it anyways so if you have the right kind of goal built around whatever it is that you're working on, you're going to be, you get a 20% boost. And are you kidding? That is so much focus for free. That is so much work done for less effort. That's an amazing thing. That's, and, and by the way, that's what happens when you get your biology to work for you rather than against you. That's the whole point of all this, right? It's not work harder. It's work smarter. And you get your, the system starts to work for you. And, you know, you get, you go farther, faster. It's interesting because I've definitely failed at this because I've also understood 
form, you know, going back to what you were talking about earlier, you know, I was best friends with Bodie Miller for a long time. We're still very close. And I really learned from him, you know, as, as an athlete that I was intimately, you know, close with and, and purview, had the you know purview to his whole psyche and his whole understanding. He never thought about winning or losing because that depended on a bunch of different factors. Were his skis right for the snow conditions? Was his start position correct in giving him the optimal opportunity because the way that the snow, and you know this year's skier, the way that the snow has been carved and what position you're in is crucial. Yeah. You don't want to go number one through 10 and you don't want to go number 30 through 40. You got to be in that sweet spot. You got to have, the, so he was just like, I'm going to ski the mountain as good as I can possibly ski it. And that's all he cared about. And of course he won multiple world championships, gold medal, et cetera. But he always focused on process and i think in general that's very important but i think i've overutilized i've overused that philosophy and not almost never set myself with a small clear goal quota of i should write this many words i've, I've kind of applied that to my mm. whole life saying like you know what i'll just always do your best and you know always you know be oh, aware well, and all yeah. and i've never set i've really never set oh the clear goals clear so goals especially yeah so so clear goals are a flow trigger Right. And when goals are, the focus shouldn't even be on the goals, it should be on the clarity. Right. And uh, while high heart goals amp up motivation, clear goals actually drive flow in the moment because they tell you where to put your attention and for how long and exactly what to do. So you don't ever have to wonder. That automatically lowers cognitive load. So, ex for example, I, we teach people to end your day by creating a clear goal list for the next day. And you always want to start with your hardest task and the one that is the biggest win. And, you know, we, we tell people to try to devote 90 minutes of uninterrupted concentration to it. That's a specific number, complete concentration of a flow trigger. And 90 minutes is how we are biologically, how long we are biologically designed to focus. REM sleeps 90 minutes, so are our waking cycles. So 90 minutes is a really good window your brain is designed to focus for that long and tell people to see if you can start your day with your hardest task first thing on your clear goals list and it's the biggest win for the day so for me that's always um my writing session and you reference 500 words a day that's when i'm starting a book because 500 words is 350 i can do with my eyes closed 500 words is one idea and you have to connect it to the next idea and that yeah. transition, right? That's the bitch. And so if I can get to five, <laughs> right, you know that. So, and, but that's also at the start of a book, the middle of the book, I know more or less a little bit more what I'm doing. So then it's like 800 words a day and the end of a book, it's 1200, 1500 words a day. So it's a moving target depending on the day, but start with your hardest task, go to your easiest. And the thing that's really important here is Figure out how many things you can be excellent at it in a day. Try it. Run it out. Like try five things in your clear goals list. Can you really be excellent at all of them? And I, when I say it goes on your list, if it's going to take energy, it's going to the gym, it goes on the list. If you're going to hike the dogs, it goes on the list. If you're going to have a meaningful conversation with your spouse, it goes on the list. Anything that's going to take energy goes onto the list. Figure out how many things you can do in a day and be excellent at it. That's how many things go on the list. And you want all of them pointed, all your clear goals need to be pointed at your high hard goals, which need to be pointed at your massively transformative purpose. And that's how you get the absolute most lift out of your day. What about 
<clears throat> what about accountability for these for these goals? Because that's when somebody else, in the case of the lumberjack quota, somebody else was setting setting the goal. They had an, they had accountability, or if you're working for somebody else, you have a certain level of accountability. And <clears throat> so, what about accountability? Because this is the thing that I also have. Sometimes I'll do that, and I'll be like, "Well, I made this fucking schedule anyways, you know." So I made this list, so I can remake this list on the fly, right? So, so, so you I, can kind of, it allows me a you, little bit too much flexibility. I so I I always say it this way, and this is in the book, and you read right past it because you didn't want to like <laughs> look, right. You read right past it, um, but I think one of the there's certain laws of peak performance. And I think the first one is always keep your word. And I don't mean always keep your word to other people. Of course, that's super important. But I mean always keep your word to yourself. Mm. And so one of the things we know, like if I say it out loud, it's a contract. I've said it to the world. I've said it with myself. It's a done deal. I, I have to tell this to everybody who works for me. I'm like, you can't come into a meeting with me and tell me you got something because to me, it's a contract. Like it's the same as if we, you know, got lawyers involved and signed on the dotted line. And like, that's how I roll. And once you say it out loud, I'm going to hold you accountable to that. And if you don't deliver, I'm going to fire you. Right. I'm really clear on that kind <laughs> of stuff. I'm like, you know, but I'm really, so when I put it on a to-do list, it's a contract with myself. I've just entered into a contract with myself mm. and I don't let myself out of it. And so if it's on my to-do list, now there are days where, you know, item number three on the to-do list turns into a nightmare. You know what yeah. I mean? And I didn't, yeah. and I, I didn't see that coming. And, you know, then I'm like, okay, I put in a full day. You know what I mean? I got nothing left in the tank. I will boot this stuff onto the next, you know, I don't, I'm not illogical about it, but I will, you know, if I need to stay at work an extra hour, two hours or three hours to finish off a list just so I kept my word to myself in a given day. I do. And I think that's the, like, that's where you really start getting super exponential results from that level of, cause it's a certain, it's a grit skill. And the thing about grit and pushing yourself harder is there's learning to be tougher, like you, which you have to do by going out and pushing yourself kind of beyond your limits consistently that's familiar to everybody. And most people, especially if you've ever played a sport, you can do that. But there's a second half to that equation, which is you have to believe you're that gritty. So you have to actually have done it enough times in a row. You can't just go out and, uh, I'm going to train grit today by going really hard once. Your brain has to believe that reservoir is real and it's there. So you, if you do it over and over and over and over again, you keep that word to yourself over and over and over you start to develop a different level of trust with your own sort of grit skills and fortitude skills. And I think that further amplifies performance. Like that, everything that further amplifies performance is the thing I can't prove on everything else. I get up to that point I could prove, but like, this is where the science ends. I think it further amplifies performance. That's an opinion. Everything else I can give you the science on. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really important thing to, to note because there's certain things that we've all proved to ourselves, and you know for me because i'm using myself as this n n of one kind of example here i've proved to myself that when something or someone really needs me i'm fucking there and i know that about myself when it needs to be done when it must when i must show up and be at my best i know i will right and so that's something that and i've proven that and it's not like i was born with that i've i've shown that i've flexed that muscle over and over again 
And then it's in the small stuff. It's in those, and I get frustrated with myself about this, in the stuff that I allow myself too much permissibility and flexibility to modulate it and too much of going back on my word. So in some ways I haven't built enough trust in myself, which, so if I reduce it to the specific thing I didn't do, oh, well, you said you were going to do yoga today, but you didn't do that. No big deal. You know, if I reduce it to not doing yoga in a day, all right. I mean, the, that's not that big a deal. Yeah. It's not the thing that you didn't do. It's the not doing. Exactly. And that's the thing that will universally be a detractor for my ability to operate at my peak, which is the most important thing in my life. So reframing it that way, it's almost like it anchors it back to a bigger why, an even bigger why. Yeah. You stop. Fuck. Once you start to figure out that you're like, oh, wait a minute. It's not the thing. It's the doing of the thing because I'm training a muscle. I'm not, it's not, it it has nothing to do with the yoga. Right. So I have, I, you know, at the end of the book, we talk, I have a low grit. So when I can't work out, like on for energy days where I'm freaking exhausted, I've got workout on my schedule and I just can't, I'm just so beat, whatever, whatever reason. I have a low grit workout exercise, which is 200 push ups. If I hike my dogs for 20 minutes up the mountain behind my house and do 200 push ups along the way, I can. I can skate when I have like, meaning I haven't slept, I've slept two hours. I really, the day is long and, you know, I have a low grit exercise workout that I do because I'm like, if man, if you can't hike up a hill for 20 minutes and do 200 pushups when you're fucking exhausted, then like, I shouldn't do half the stuff I do. You know what I mean? Right. Like, so I like even I, and, and I do it not because man, there's nothing walking uphill for 20 minutes and doing 200 pushups is not going to do anything for my fitness. You know what I mean? But I'm doing it so I just know that when I'm that exhausted, I can do this thing. Yeah, it's it's training self-efficacy to a certain degree, you know, and I think that's uh, that's absolutely vital. There's something I'm going to go to another concept that I thought was really interesting. So uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez recommended that when you're in something and you're really kind of moving, quit while you're still excited. And yeah. my my brain just lit up when you talked about this because it makes a lot of sense. So go explain the the philosophy behind that because I think it's uh, okay. it's a really so we were, cool idea. What this is in the this is in the let's let's give the motivation gets you into the peak performance game. We've been talking about that. And motivation is really when psychologists use the term, it's a try. They mean grit. They mean goals. They mean intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation. So that's the motivation suite. Then you, once you have motivation that gets into the game and the goals to tell you a little bit how you get, get there and you need the grit because that's what you need when the motivation sort of runs out along the way. The next thing you need is to accelerate learning. You have to keep learning, especially because if you remember that flow shows up when we use our skills to the utmost. So not only do you want to kind of tick everything off on your clear goals list, you want to attack it, right? And, and sort of push to the edge of your skill set. If you do that, what happens? You keep learning. So you need the learning skills to be able to keep up with the acceleration that's coming along. That allows you to continue to play. And finally, you need creativity because that allows you how to steer. And especially because the book is about going towards high, hard goals, those are often things we don't quite know how to get to, right? You can't just, there's no rule book, there's no playbook, 
you sort of had a bunch of ideas of what, what you do, but no real clear idea to get there. You need creativity and innovation is how we steer. And then the last step is, of course, you need a flow to turbo boost the whole process beyond all reasonable expectations. But the, we're in the creativity portion of this, of this kind of uh, suite of skills that you're talking about. And this is uh, ways to sort of amplify creativity. And this is also a very good flow hack. So when I teach flow for writers, which is my the big kind of creative class that I, that I, that I run sometimes, um, we always use this. This is one of the first things we teach people is stop working when you're most excited. And Garcia Marquez, nobody's quite sure where it came from originally. Hemingway used to do it too. And he used to stop. He got so addicted to it, he would stop writing in the middle of a sentence. And it's, it's a twofold hack. The idea is... We'll come back to the flow sec portion of it a second in a second, but when you quit when you're most excited, the next morning when you stop, right, when you start, when, nothing is harder than getting into mm -hmm. something, right? That's the, that's what's going to require the most grit. So they're making they're making it easier because you're if you're quitting while you're most excited, you're going to carry that excitement back with you the next time you start. You jump into a project, and I've used that for years when I write. So my, I will write 500 words a day, right? But I will try to stop when I'm at a point where like I'm really psyched about sort of like the sentence I'm writing, right? It doesn't even have to be like the idea. It just has to be like, oh my God, I'm really liking this sentence. And then I just sort of stop there. So it'll like linger in my head. The other thing is this is really sort of key in flow because flow as a general self-awareness sort of dials down, right? And by the time you're coming back into consciousness, when you sort of note, when you're like, oh, wow, I'm actually really excited. This is really fun. You've actually probably been in flow for a little while. And the neurochemicals, we've been talking about norepinephrine and dopamine, they're at peak concentration. They last about 20 minutes in the brain. That's why TED Talks are 20 minutes long, because our maximum focusing chemicals, they've got twice. So if I crank it all the way up, that you get about 20 minutes worth of intense focus. You can spread that out longer um, various ways, but that's sort of, so by the, by the time you're really noticing you're in flow, you've probably been in there 30, 40, 40 minutes a little bit, and um, you may be waning a little bit on, mm. right? So it's like, A, it's a good way to conserve a little bit of norepinephrine and dopamine for the next day so you don't exhaust it all also because you can do that in flow. You can just keep chasing ideas because it's fun and you'll you'll burn out all your norepinephrine and dopamine. And by that point, usually it sort of gets to be diminishing returns after a little while. Um, uh, Scott Schmidt, who early extreme skier, used to say, flow makes me feel like I'm Superman up until the moment I'm not. <laughs> right and i like i, I noticed that skiing yeah. like i'll be in flow i'll be in flow i'll be in flow i'll be in flow and suddenly i am just not in flow and if i like you know if i was thought i was in really deep in flow and decided to hike up to the peak i better hope i'm still in flow by the time <laughs> right. i get up you know what i mean right yeah the uh <clears throat> that that idea of potentially because this is also i think sometimes without understanding the biology of what you were actually doing we might not understand the necessity for that recycle rate you know the ability to recycle and actually pay attention to our biology and that's where you know that that kind of restoration that that active restoration passive restoration that becomes an important part of this cycle because 
we are actually dealing with a high energy output and actual physical chemical reaction that does not have an infinite level of potentiality that is absolutely true this is you know this is a, this is one of the most you know it's sort of at the end of the book but you know i i i don't know the exact numbers we i probably trained over 100,000 people at this point and probably the most important thing i uh, out of all that work is talking to people about the flow cycle because most people think it's a light switch you're either in the zone or you're out of the zone and it's not it's a four-stage process and there's very precise shifts in neurobiology and neurophysiology underneath each stage and the third stage is the flow cycle itself but as you pointed out very energy intensive even if it feels great you're burning a shit ton of energy there and on the back end there's a recovery period and um we have discovered by the way if you you know have an active recovery protocol and you double down in your primary flow uh, activities in your life it's almost impossible to burn out there are certain situations that can do it but if burnout is a problem if you're um if you've got an active recovery protocol coupled to regular access to your primary flow activity it's really prophylactic against burnout and what an active recovery is passive recovery is television and a beer right that's that's passive recovery and tv is actually really bad for recovery uh because of how it, it it affects our brain waves um it feels like you're recovering and you're not and alcohol is a disaster when it comes to recovery um too much sugar um really messes with sleep blah blah, blah. just it really tends to block recovery active recovery restorative yoga epsom salt bath long breath work um long walk in nature uh infrared sauna regular sauna i love i'm a, I'm a big sauna at not advocate because you know what i what works for me may not necessarily work for you but saunas work really really well for me for active recovery me and i try to like can do my do breath work in the sauna saunas will automatically lower cortisol whereas some of the other stuff doesn't do it automatically i like it for that reason etc etc i don't have to tell you about saunas and cold therapy too i mean well yeah cold therapy that's, the, that's one of my favorite tools for sure and and for me getting my eyes under the water triggering that mammalian dive reflex feeling my heart mm. rate start to drop i mean that's a key aspect of that to me that's why i far prefer cold immersion than cryotherapy even though they have some full full body cryos but a lot of them just go up to the neck doesn't quite cut it for me like for me i really need to get to that point where my body is starting to downregulate all biological activities because it's trying to conserve energy and when i'm in that state i pop out of there and i'm you know really refreshed but you know really keen to think about you know that everything in the human organism is cyclical and we need that the the yin to the yang always in all of these things and even though f while flow can seem restorative in a, to a certain degree it's also burning fuel oh yeah you know. and i you know a simple example i i'm a workaholic right if it's not ski season or downhill mountain bike ski season mm -hmm. like i you know and even if it if it is on the days and i'm not i'll do 17 hour days you know what i mean like i i work and i ski and that's about you know what i mean and um but i found i got a nine week limit and then i have to go shut it down and be absolutely quiet for two days nine ten weeks because i'll start the work will just start slipping it's just you can i can only push for so hard before i have even like even with day live active recovery protocols built in you know what i mean 
even with the regular active recovery protocols, after like nine to 12 weeks, I got to shut it down for two days. Yeah, it's knowing it's knowing yourself, and that's going to yep. be different for everybody. Everybody, this is where totally. so much of this is formulaic, but it's also flexible depending on the. Oh well, yeah, the I mean that's yeah, that's I mean by the end of the art of impossible, there's a whole bunch of onboarding stuff. You got to line up your intrinsic motivations, all that stuff. But by the end of it, everything that book covers is six things to do in a day, seven things to do in a week. It's that's not it's and the some of the day stuff that can be five a couple of them are five minute processes. Um, a couple of them are like your 90 minutes for uninterrupted concentration. You're gonna be doing whatever it is you need to be do. That's just, you know, for to maximize focus and peak performance kind of thing. That's not a huge bunch of stuff. But as you pointed out, how everybody is gonna do it is totally individual. Yeah. And it has to be. Like, and I, you know, I always in the book. I opened the book with this too often in, in, in peak performance. You know what people figure out what works for them. They try to train other people with it. And it, it most of the time it fails for everybody else. And the reason in the, the way I, we always talk about it is personality doesn't scale. Biology scales. And the reason is that personality core aspects of your personality, where are you on the introversion to extroversion scale? How active or inactive are your dopamine receptors and thus your risk tolerances. These are genetically hardwired and set up by early childhood experience. And yours are going to be very different from mine. So my personality, you know, I found this out early on. My risk tolerances were shaped by, I was a professional journalist. We, like, if you don't nearly die once every three months as a professional <laughs> journalist, you're not doing your job. And I was also doing a lot of time, spending time around action sports athletes. And if they don't die on a, like, nearly month by month basis they're not doing their job so these this was just normal life to me for a very long time i thought i didn't realize everybody didn't have those risk tolerance you know what i mean i just thought this was just yeah of course you would nearly die two three times a year of course, that's just what happens right and so when i started i learned a little about flow right after i had sort of written my first book i mean, i'd made the mistake that everybody makes you learn a little about performance, you start, you want to help your friends, right? And my friends saw, I was writing a column for psychology today. I had written, you know, some bestsellers on this stuff. They really thought I knew what I was talking about. <laughs> and I, so I'm terrified. I, you know, I nearly caused a divorce. I put a couple people in the hospital. I nearly got a guy killed. Two of my friends still haven't spoken to me in 20 <laughs> years. You know what I mean? It was, I, I made a mess of it. And uh, that was where that sort of idea started to emerge. Like, wait a minute, personality doesn't scale. Biology scales because we share enough similar biology that if you can get down, that's why the neuroscience matters so much, right? Psychology is great, but it's essentially metaphor. When psychologists use a term like mindset, when I say mindset out loud or you say it out loud, most people think we mean attitudes towards life. And when psychologists say it, they mean attitude toward learning, and specifically, they mean specific things in the brain. Psychology is metaphor. Neuroscience mm -hmm. is mechanism. And if you can get down to the neuroscience, you can get to the me mechanistic level, and then you really have a blueprint to work from. Yeah. I thought one of the things that I really enjoyed <clears throat> was when uh, you talked about how oftentimes people will list themselves as one thing or another thing. They'll be uh, introverted or extroverted. They'll be playful or serious. Then you list like a whole group of 10 of these. And I think it's from Chihex Mehai, um, his research where he talked about both and, 
Yeah. Right. So it's, it's, so Mike and I actually have a little bit of a disagreement on this, but it's his work uh, originally, which is that most people are either or personalities as general are either are, but creatives are both. And so creatives are extremely introverted at certain times and really, really extroverted at others. They have to be really, really sort of naive. You have to be really naive a little bit to write a book. But you have to be really, really, really sharp and, and not naive tomorrow. You just need to be conservative, right? You're, you're an artist. You're conserving the tradition of painting. You're still as a painter, but you're also rebelling against it a little bit so you can be both. And, and where I said, uh, I can, uh, Chick sent me high and have a little bit of a disagreement is he, is pre he has argued that uh, there's a creative personality type that, and Certainly, uh, there's work that points to uh, schizotypical people as, as more creative and more both and. But what I think is true is as people learn to be more creative, at what, one of the things that happens is you start having to take in more perspectives, starting to see things from more sides as you become more creative. And that, I think, starts to train up this both andness. So I always warn people that like if you've been if you're sort of not trained creativity before and you start doing it and you start becoming more creative, expect more emotions along the way because that's yeah. what both and gives you, right? And it's going to, so you start to see it. Um, and you've, I've seen it in, in companies too. When you, you know, companies are like, oh my God, we got we to work on innovation and creativity. And they start up these programs and employees do get more creative. They also get more emotional. Mm. Yeah. And that's, uh, and I think just having the acceptance for that. So if you are creative and you do go through these swings of emotions, instead of judging yourself for it oh, and saying yeah. like, oh my God, I can't believe I was naive here and I was serious, but then I got so playful. And then I, you start judging because you think you're supposed to be a certain way, but to yeah. really be in that creative spirit to really is to accept that you're going to be both of these things and these things, and you're going to have the highs yeah. and the lows. And I, that's just the nature of your life. I, I, you know, it's funny because uh, Flow for Writers pre-COVID, we used to train, uh, do it out, out, out live every, I'd do it like once a year, maybe, you know, usually it's a digital class once a year. And when I would teach people this very thing, you would watch the relief on people's faces, <laughs> right? Yeah, for like sure. one after another, they're like, oh my God, now I understand. <laughs> this is why I'm going up and down so much. Oh, it's there's hard wiring for this, and it's actually a superpower, even though it hurts a lot sometimes. <laughs> right, right. But it's a very it's a liberating piece of information. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think there are some other interesting things that that you notated there as well. And talking about creativity, you talked about how a five year old was scoring on genius levels, four mm -hmm. and five year olds scoring at genius levels of creativity, and then it kind of degrades over time. If you want to go over that. I think that's an interesting concept for us to to think about of what can happen from the conditioning of, uh, of being in this world that we're in. So it's interesting. It was a study uh, done by a guy named George Land. He did it with NASA. NASA was like, okay, um, they were they were really interested in creativity for obvious obvious reasons, and uh, so they came. He came up with. They, he was one of the people that came up with a test for divergent thinking. So convergent thinking is sort of logical and it moves in towards an idea, right? You close in. Divergent is wildly disparate, connecting 
really disparate ideas together. And they created a really simple test for divergent thinking. And they started testing different patient populations. They basically figured out that kids, very, very young kids, test extremely well for divergent thinking and that atrophies over time. And you start out wildly divergent at around age five. And it, by around age 15, 16, it's naturally shrunk down. Um, <clears throat> there are a bunch of different reasons for this, um, but it's a muscle, basically. That, uh, that study is sort of erroneous in where it leads you because your creative skills don't sort of atrophy over time. You're just not using them as much, and you're not most jobs teach us to think convergently, especially at the time they were doing these and studies. Schools, and schools, and schools too. do. But I think that's started to change a lot. Um, but certainly, um, creativity, we didn't used to think it was trainable. It's very trainable. That, that, that we sort of now know. And flow massively amplifies creativity and divergent thinking um, as well. Um, so those things are, are super trainable and you can definitely get more of them, but you have to work on them because, you know, and some of this is just normal, natural, uh, brain pruning, it's just yeah. how it happens, right? We're, we're born with all kinds of crazy neural connections and they prune back and prune back in, in the early years of our life. One of the other things <clears throat> that you talked about that was, uh, is immediate feedback and getting immediate feedback as you're learning in any, in any skill. And you talked about how people's skills in a lot of professions degrade over time, which is counterintuitive. You would think that, you know, your skills yeah, would no, improve doctors, the you did it. Yeah. The, the, the clearest example is doctors, which um, unless you're a surgeon or feedback is immediate, most doctors get worse the longer they're out of med school. Um, because feedback, think about a radiologist, they'll read a radiological screen. Most of them don't even, they'll never know if the patient even lives or dies. So they don't know, did I read it right? Did I read it wrong? It's just, they're reading it for a doctor. They're passing it along to the doctor. This is starting to change a little bit because people are starting to realize that feedback is so important. It's a flow trigger. When feedback is immediate, you don't have to wonder how am I doing, right? Just because mastery, we all want like, to be good at the things we do. Um, it's a motivator. And feedback tells us how you're doing. And it also, you know, where and when to put your attention is a big flow trigger. Um, also very crucial for learning. And you know, when we work with organizations uh, who want to increase the amount of flow in the organization, you we always tell them, like, you can't have quarterly reports or, like, yearly. You know what I mean? That doesn't – that's not immediate feedback. You know, the example I give uh, – one of the examples I talk about in the book is just my own life in writing – you know this because publishers, editors these days, they don't really edit in the way that like, I like to have somebody read basically everything I write a couple days after I write it. I like to write it. I like to rewrite it, work it a couple times and then get some feedback. You know, if I have an editor read a book twice or three times during the course of while I'm a whole book, while I'm writing it, uh, an editor with a publishing house, I'm lucky, right? That's, oh yeah. my God, I got a lot of their attention. Normally it's like one read. and Maybe it's a good, you know what I mean? Maybe it's a good edit. Maybe it's not depending on, on who you're working with and where you are. I have a, so I had to hire somebody who can, you know, read my stuff twice a week and give me the feedback I need. And it was one of the most amazing thing I ever did for writing. Like my, I, 
doubled my output in terms of writing by just having somebody giving me feedback. It was, you know, it was an amazing kind of writing hack for me and big flow hack. It took flow from like my, before he was on my staff, before I was working with him, flow with writing was probably 40% chance of getting into flow while writing. But once he, you know, and I was, I just worked with him two hours on Tuesdays and two hours on Fridays. Um, my chances of getting into flow while writing are 60 to 70%. Because I sort of always know where I am. And the other thing is, I also know if I get myself into a shit ton of trouble and really screwed up, <laughs> I'm not going to go meandering in the desert for weeks on end because I got a guy coming in twice a week. <laughs> and going to be like, buddy, you're way yeah. the fuck, you know, you're, yeah. you're off in tangent land. And it's a huge relief, massive, massive improvement. Um, and now, so, you know, I tell people, look, you don't have to hire somebody. Find a feedback buddy, find a, find a partner, find a friend. And again, feedback should be focused on the activity, right? When I work with my, my, my editor, I don't want feedback on my life or how I'm, <laughs> I really, you know what I mean? And I don't even want him to give me his opinions about certain things in the book. Like I, I focus it, you know, I always, my things are, is it boring? Is it arrogant or is it confusing? And yeah. if my writings aren't those three arrogant, meaning I'm using lots of fancy words and, you know, usually that's a sign that I haven't done enough research. It's usually, <laughs> well, the body, the problem is the body is a homostatic organism. We don't like to burn energy if we don't have to, right? So your body is willing to like, if you're writing, it's willing to give you the energy for the writing, but it doesn't want you to like, oh shit, I got to go back and do more research, right? right? So I'll try to cover up the fact that I don't, I'll do this unconsciously. It's not even a conscious thing. It's just an unconscious tell that I've come to recognize when I am using a lot of fancy words or a lot of fancy language or really moving my readers a lot emotionally. I always sort of look at it and I'm like, did you do enough research? That's like, <laughs> right? Because I'm covering in a sense. And I'm doing it uh -huh. unconsciously, right? Um, so now, you know, now at this point, my editor, he knows what my tells are. And he, so I get very precise is exactly kind of the feedback I need for performance. I'm trying yeah, to get out of this uh, weird sunlight. <laughs> yeah, the sunlight that's crashing in. Yeah, I mean, when you really know something, you can reduce it to incredibly simple terms, you know, and when you don't, you try to, you know, kind of show off how much you might know. It's, it's there's this subtle insecurity that can sometimes be there or just some lack I, of efficacy that might, uh, yeah, that might I've, be there. I've got a general, and I, I tell this, you know, to a lot of the folks on my staff, we work with a lot of science people, but I always say somebody needs a lot of really fancy words to explain something, they're lying. Yeah. <laughs> like I just, I really like, I've never, I, there are people, you'll meet people in the world who, you know, they speak neuroscience and every, you know what I mean? Every word is a very precise term, blah, blah, blah. It's just like diarrhea of neuro terminology. And I'm like, I don't know. I like, I work with the best in the world and all of them can explain this. I mean, right. Yes, if we're having a super technical discussion about a very precise thing that we're doing research on, we might write sentences like that, but we don't ever, when we're talking to each other, right. that's not how we're, right? Like <laughs> it might go in the actual paper that's going to go in nature or something, but it's never how we talk about it at all. And I always feel like whenever, I always feel like whenever I'm hearing somebody do that to me, yeah, I'm being conned. There's yeah. something I'm not being told. I don't like, I speak this language and I don't like, 
I don't see any reason to tell you this. All right, I'm trying to figure out there you where go. is there we go. All right, this is the side. I need to get blackout curtains in here. It's, it's, <laughs> I, I moved about a year ago. I love the new office, but the winter sun for podcasts is a new thing that I'm sort of dealing with. And I'm like, yeah. oh, this is sun drops. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, it's a good view, but like, it's not it's not helping me out my cause. <laughs> So one of the things that, you know, that speaks to this is you talk about one of the things you recommend is to get at least five books that make you feel stupid. And it's books that really stretch your mind to a certain extent. No, well, but it doesn't, doesn't mean that the language makes you feel stupid. It's that, that the concepts are so high level. And, and you actually list one of the books that I would put in that category for me. And that's James Carse's book on finite and infinite games, right? Very simple language, but the philosophy is at such a high level that it just, it wows me and it stretches me and it, it enhances the way I think about the world. And it's a hard, it's a hard book. I have to read it slow. You know, like if I was listening on audiobook, which I'm not, but no way I could put that at 2X speed. No fucking chance. You know, I got to go at 1X and I got to pay attention and put my food down and listen, you know? So uh, what we're, the five books is stupid, which is what you're referring to, is in, uh, it's a system for onboarding, right? If you want to accelerate learning, you need a process for knowledge and a process for skills, and they're, and they're slightly different. And um, I, uh, this is the one of the few things in the book that is actually based on something that actually came out of my own experience. Um, but at, when I was a journalist for years, I worked for over 100 different publications, Time and the New York Times and Wired and Atlantic Monthly. And I would often have to become an expert in the subject to write about it, right? You can, like you don't go into a neuroscience story for, you know, Wired or something like that. A million people are going to, you don't get it wrong and you don't get any chance to get it wrong, right? If you screwed up the magazine, fact checkers are going to figure it out and you're never going to work for them again. So like, you know, it's crucial to get stuff right. And I would often have to learn a really hard subject fairly quickly. And I figured out, I developed a system for it that, and the system starts with what I call the five books of stupid, which is um, just a way, you know, start with the most fun book possible just to familiar yourself with the language. And it's, it's basically a system that's built on the fact that we have innate pattern recognition systems for brains. And the most important thing about like, as you're onboarding knowledge is I always tell you people is, a lot of a subject is contained in both the history of the subject and the language of the subject. And so in the beginning, you want to pay attention to specific things, but it's lang it's as your brain starts to pick up the language, it'll start connecting the idea. So a lot of people have this thing where they read and if they don't understand something, they have to stop and they read back and they go back to the beginning and they get mad. And that's not how we actually naturally learn. So there's a, there's a system in there for that. But I agree. There are certain books like you want to make it progressively harder. And by the time you're getting to book four or five, those are hard books mm -hmm. and you want them as intentionally hard. And you can't really be mad at yourself for not understanding all of it. You have to trust that your brain is still finding the nuggets that it'll find. You know, there's a whole system in there, but yeah, I like, I'm a big fan of Carson's book. Yeah. It's a good book. That book is a really good book. So as we're wrapping this up, I think one of the, you know, you, you talk about some four stages that are going to lead you to these peak performance states to be mindful of. And I like that you started the first one with struggle. 
that mm-hmm. you're just in a place where shit is hard. Well, you know, it's not, we all so find ourselves in that. This is the so this is the biology of the flow cycle, and it you know flows the third stage is the best we get to feel on the planet. But it starts with struggle, and struggle is a very it's easy, by design is a difficult phase, and um, it turns out. Usually struggle refers to like a skills onboarding phase. So like when you were learning to play pickleball, right? To first swing that mini racket, whatever you were Mm -hmm. like, everything was new and you were just onboarding the skills, right? That's struggle. You're just figuring it out. What we now know is that even when it's like a millisecond, say you're like riding out your mountain bike or you're sitting down to, to do some work, even if you wanted to get into flow, there's going to always come a moment where you're like, ah, oh, shit, this is going to take more energy than I wanted. You literally, even if it's for a microsecond, you have to trigger the brain's fight response, it appears, to get into flow. There, We're not certain if there's 100% of the time, but for sure, certain a lot of the time. So even if the struggle phase is only going to last an instant, it's going to be there. And what's so important about this is what I think you alluded to when you started, which is, I think a lot of people, when they start to feel frustration, they think it's a sign that they're moving in the wrong direction. And for a lot of biological reasons, if you want more flow in your life, struggle is actually a sign that you're moving in the right direction. So I often say on the road to peak performance, a lot of your emotions don't mean what you think they mean, right? Fear for most people means stop. Peak performers, it means go. Struggle and frustration for most people means I'm doing something wrong. No, no, no. In order to be performance, it actually means you're doing something right. You're exactly where you want to be. And this, this, it's, like the ch- it's like the both and stuff with creativity earlier. Like if you understand how the organisms works, yes, you're still going to – it still feels like shit, right? Like frustration doesn't feel any better just because you know, oh, I'm moving in the right direction. It's that, I mean, I, all, the only difference is – when I'm done working at the end of the day and I come back to meet my wife, like it used to be before I knew frustration was a sign that I was moving in the right direction, I'd be really like, she'd have to deal with pissed off Steven for, you know what I mean? For, <laughs> but now I'm like, okay, it feels awful, but I actually know I'm moving in the right direction. So I know that tomorrow this is going to be useful for me, drive me to the place I want to go. And it's also a, a way to train that fight response. And you you talk about uh, Huberman's kind of research about how that is a highly pleasurable state. And I know this from firsthand experience. There's a cer- there's certain times where I feel like I'm on my heels, and maybe I'm not running, but I'm certainly like lean back, dodging, slipping. You know, kind of like moving back from the work, from the from the tiger, from the dragon that I know that I need to face. And I'm like. Yeah just really on my heels but as soon as i shift that to a forward leaning stance and i'm like you know what fuck this like i'm done with this i'm going straight at it that moment it becomes intensely pleasurable and i'm like hoka hey let's fucking go and at the moment i say that nothing has changed other than my attitude other than going from my heels to being on my toes with a little half smile on my face my whole attitude and my whole biology i'm sure if you actually hooked it up and measured it has shifted immensely just like that yeah it's it's courage it's our favorite feeling we (laughs) love well you get a little bit of dopamine and it's direct alignment with long-term goals it just it brings up a whole bunch of stuff and you get energy there's a lot of life in there i was noticing and i was thinking as you were talking 
you know, it's early. It's, I've had seven days on the snow and I'm a big skier. That's my, that's my main sport. And you always have to get used to uh, ski speed. It usually takes seven, eight days until like, you know, skiing takes place at 40, 50, 60 miles an hour, really. And, mm -hmm. but it takes your brain, even, you know, really good skiers, a bunch of days to realize that like, oh, I can go that fast safely. <laughs> this weekend, I, there was a, it was the first time they opened some territory at that and open and I got to dive in and I, you were talking about being on your toes and I, it was just one of those runs that I've been sort of sitting back and I was like, no, fuck it, man. You got to attack. <laughs> I, I literally like leaned in and got on my toes and just like dove into that first turn, like really, you know, really dove in. And it was right, like suddenly it was right there. And I was like, oh yeah, right. You gotta like, even me, right? Like I'm an expert. I've written so many books about this stuff, but even then in the moment, you got to remind yourself of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And train and just train that muscle. And every time, you know, and, and what a, what a great metaphor because skiing, it literally is on your toes. And yeah. actually, interestingly enough, being on your toes is probably a safer way to ski that same hill than trying to be on your heels oh, and be yeah. conservative in a lot oh, of ways. Yeah, yeah. It's like you're really yeah. meeting well, the mean, challenge head on. All the equipment is designed to be driven, right? Like none of the equipment works if you're not. My, my, my boots are great when I stay forward leaning. My skis are great when I stay forward leaning. I don't, my equipment is not particularly forgiving <laughs> when I'm not on top of it. You know what I yeah. mean? Totally, totally. And that's the same with the human organism. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure, brother. Thank you so much for doing this. And so people who are curious to take, you know, their own yeah. journey with you, where would they uh where would they go? Go to theartofimpossible.com is the is where the where the where the book has been living. You can also stephencotler.com. And as I said, uh passion www.passionrecipe.com um is a formula that will teach you how to turn curiosity into passion and passion into purpose, um, which will get you kind of, you know, going along this path a little bit. And uh, Flow Research Collective, if you're interested in flow training or Beautiful, the man. science we're doing. Well, it's great to reconnect with you, brother. Man, it's been a while, but it's you. good to see you. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll I'll hit you up when we're heading to the snow somewhere and maybe we'll, uh, we'll oh, cross please. paths and get to take you a few You know I'm runs. in Tahoe now. So yeah. Come on out. Hell yeah. I love cool. it. Thanks, brother. I'll talk to you soon. And Pleasure. thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Peace. Thanks for tuning in to this show with Stephen Kotler. You guys are the fucking best. I'll see you next week.